the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation. A sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for The Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888 That's P.O. Box 18888 San Antonio, Texas 78218 Welcome to The Bible Live Quiz Hour It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Sophie will ask questions from the Bible Live leaders. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. All right, here we are in the house thanking you for joining us on this Easter Sunday. And uh, Jacob is not here this week, taking a, a well-deserved day of rest, spending time with his family as they celebrate and observe Passover together uh, at this time of the year as well. So thank you for joining us. We're going to look into our readings. This past week, we were in the books of Second Kings in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. We were covering the transition now from the time of Solomon uh, David's son Solomon that uh, took the throne upon David's death. And uh, now, now that Solomon is leading the country, he the, the nation, uh, he is now ready to go on and move out. And his son, uh, Rehoboam, is set to take the throne and to begin to lead the people of Israel. Although, uh, as you know, perhaps... When Rehoboam uh, steps up to take the throne, he makes a very, very bad political mistake. Uh, he, uh, the, the people were already suffering from being extremely overtaxed. Um, <laughs> remind you of anyone by any chance? And um, Rehoboam was counseled to lighten the load, and he could continue being the king. Uh, they would respect his leadership and follow him. 
But he foolishly chose not to do that. He would not lower taxes. In fact, he said, I'm going to increase them. I'm going to be even harder on you than my father Solomon was. And uh, so they, that led to the, the people rebelling. The, 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 uh, the tribes of the north called Israel, <clears throat> those ten tribes broke away and rebelled and followed uh, another young man named Jeroboam that had been uh, predicted would by the prophet of that time that he was going to be the one who would lead this rebellion and become the king then of Israel in the north. So this is the kingdom divided. You may have heard that phrase used uh, uh, under Saul, David, and Solomon. There was a united kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes. And then now at the um, outbreak of of, uh, Rehoboam's reign after Solomon, we see the kingdom divide, the 10 tribes in the north, uh, become known as Israel. The two tribes, Benjamin and Judah in the south, become Judah. And uh, then that, they exist that way for for a number of decades. Uh, and then the kingdoms of the north are the first to fall. They fall to Persia in 722 B.C. Uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Nineveh. They come down and they capture the ten tribes of the north. And then a little over 100 years later, um, <clears throat> the, the Babylonians come over under Nebuchadnezzar, and they capture the two tribes in the south, uh, uh, Judah, and take them. Uh, and you remember that is the time of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, the time of when they were taken over into Babylon for their 70 years of um, uh, of exile. And then they come back. So you're kind of getting the big fl- the big picture, the flow of the Hebrew Scriptures here. <clears throat> and uh, this last week we read from the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, and we'll be talking about that during this hour. But since this is, um, since this is Easter Sunday 2019, I thought I would take the first part of the uh, program tonight, at least the first part, and talk a little bit about, uh, <clears throat> jump ahead a few centuries and jump ahead to the coming of Jesus of Nazareth and uh, talk a little bit about the resurrection uh, of Jesus. There's um, a, a lot said, of course. Uh, I hope you've attended worship today with men and women uh, here in our city around South Texas who love the Lord and and uh, honor Him and, and worship Him and trust in uh, the Jesus as the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior that was <clears throat> long promised long awaited all during the Hebrew scriptures and I, I think that's one reason I want to take a little time today to talk about uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah and about um, his role, who he was, what he did, what he accomplished on our behalf and uh, this idea of uh, a man coming back from the dead, coming out of the grave. Now uh, I want you to know that I don't say that in any uh, religious terms. I think sometimes, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> sometimes we religiousize uh, the event of the resurrection so much that we, it also almost becomes mythological or something like Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or something. And I think what we need to understand is that this 
when we talk about a man coming out of the grave, uh, I mean, that doesn't (laughs) – I feel this is unnecessary to say to you. I assume most of you have have attended at one time in your life a funeral, and you've seen uh, the deceased uh, in state in the coffin or waiting, and and, uh, it – so what we're talking about is real-life event. We're not just talking about sort of a religious-sized deal, a ritual, or a sort of a legend or a mytho- mythological type thing. We're talking about the fact that a, a human being predicted – it was predicted by many others for centuries before this. And then he himself, Jesus, predicted that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he would be arrested, that he would be tried, he would be uh, found uh, guilty that he would be killed, that he would be hung on a Roman cross, and that he would die, but that he would rise from the dead. Now, I don't know what his disciples made of that. Evidently, they didn't catch it in the beginning. They didn't take him literally, or they just it was so out of their out of the realm of the ordinary that they. I don't know what they did with it. Uh, as it happened, as it rolled out and happened days later, <clears throat> it looks like uh, they really hadn't believed him or they hadn't really kind of taken that seriously. Uh, and they seemed to be of su- surprised and alarmed by it as anyone would be uh, if you had a close loved one or a friend that, that died and you had the funeral and was buried. And then, and then that came back from the dead, literally, uh, it would be it would be earth shaking. It would be life changing. It would be astounding. You probably would have doubted your own sanity uh, and the reality of it. So, what we need to think of this event as not as some religious event or some mythological thing, but we need to think about it and consider it as it was presented in Scripture as a real historical event. A man actually did predict his own death and his own resurrection from the dead, and then it happened. It took place, and we have this record of it taking place, and the record of it is very, very believable. It's very very much written in in the sense of of real-world reporting. Uh, it reports all of the disbelief. It repo- reports all of the shock. It reports all of uh, the, the the gradual uh, coming into understanding of what happened, <clears throat> remembering <clears throat> from the Hebrew Scriptures that it was indeed predicted that the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah, would not be allowed to corrupt or rot in the grave, that he would have uh, rise from the dead, that he would have an eternal kingdom, uh, and uh, they remembered that. And then, of course, they remembered the words of Jesus himself when he was with them, telling them, in fact, that he was going to rise from the dead. Do you know who the first ones that remembered that? Uh, if you read the New Testament, it wasn't the disciples. The disciples were not the ones that we read about here that first remembered that, well, he, he said he was going to rise from the dead. Uh, he, the first ones to remember that were his enemies. Uh, the religious leaders, uh, the uh, corrupt 
uh, leadership of the Jewish nation at the time, the ones who had crucified him or had given him over to the Romans to crucify, they were the ones who remembered that this charlatan, they said, he said he was going to rise from the dead, so we need to put on a guard. We need to, and so they went and requested a guard from the Romans. Uh, some people believe, and the Romans said, have your guard, you have your guard. And some believe that they, he was saying then, to them that you have your guard, the temple guard, the the Jewish temple guard, which is also a very significant force. But it, it is, I think, best understood that the Roman uh, leader did indeed give them a Roman guard uh, to guard the tomb. There was a uh, somewhere around a one and a half to two ton stone rolled over the uh, the the. Uh, the the cave it was it was uh, hewn out of solid rock. There was no back door, no way to get into it uh, from the back door. And then a two thousand pound rock was rolled over the surface, and then a Roman seal was placed uh, over the stone, and meaning a death penalty for anyone who broke that seal. And then a Roman guard of four to sixteen men. Uh, were placed there, and we have descriptions of that guard and what uh, what a Roman guard meant and uh, how they functioned, how they worked. And so uh, I, I thought if, if it's all right, I would start tonight in our first segment talking a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus. I, I guess we could we could give a title to this little presentation. Uh, we could call it You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. This is... Uh, this is some of the background. Now, and again, as I mentioned, we have to consider this not from a religious uh, sort of philosophical or kind of uh, super spiritual point of view, but this was an event, an observable, um, reported historical event. And so we we need to approach it as uh, as historians. And uh, there were a number of people who've done this over the centuries. Uh, one friend of mine, actually, was a man named Josh McDowell. Josh and Dottie have been friends of ours for many, many years. And Josh has spoken probably to more college students and university students around planet Earth than any, any other human being of our era. Uh, and Josh has written a book called uh, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and then a follow-up book called A Ready Defense of the Gospel. And he uh, very, very positively and powerfully presents the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and, he, of course, Joshua, who he was because he, as a young student uh, in college, he was an agnostic, uh, resisting and denying the the historicity or, or believing in Christ, and he decided to try to disprove the gospel. That was his uh, task, or he, he took upon himself to refute Christianity. And so he was going to explain and do the research to show that that Jesus did not resurrect. Now he wasn't the first one to do this. Uh, a number of others have done that. Uh, Professor Thomas Arnold, uh, 14 years headmaster of Rugby University, three, he was the author of the three-volume History of Rome and holder of the Chair of Modern History at Oxford. Uh, he, he, too, uh, tried to disprove the resurrection and ended up embracing and seeing that, it, in fact, the historical evidence did support the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead. Uh, 
another professor of ancient history, Dr. Paul Meyer, professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. He concluded that if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. No shred of evidence has yet discovered in literary sources, uh, epigraphy or archaeology that would disprove this statement. Uh, Lord Caldesot, uh, Lord Chief Justice of England, was also, he did have the same experience. Uh, I, I, let me quote this one. Uh, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, he was a famous uh, uh, professor of law at Harvard University. He succeeded Justice Joseph Story as the Dane professor of law at the, at the same university at Harvard. Uh, the rise of Harvard Law School to its eminent position among the legal schools of the United States is basically ascribed to the efforts of these two men, Justice Joseph Story and Simon Greenleaf. Uh, Simon Greenleaf produced his three-volume work, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which is still considered one of the great single authorities on the subject of the laws of evidence uh, and legal law uh, and uh, legal procedures. Uh, Greenleaf examined the historical evidence for the resurrection, for the resurrection of, to ascertain the truth as well, and he applied those principles in his treatise uh, on, on examining the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. And he came to the same conclusion that, uh, that uh, according to the laws of legal evidence used in the courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus than any other uh, event in history. Uh, and finally, let me mention this other one. Um, wow, there's... There's so many. But Dr. Frank Morrison, he was a lawyer who had been brought up in a rationalistic environment, had come to the opinion that the resurrection was nothing but a fairy tale with a happy ending. Uh, and he felt he owed it to himself, to others, to write a book that would present the truth and dispel the myth of the resurrection. Upon studying the facts, though, he, he too came to a different conclusion. Uh, the sheer weight of the evidence, the historical evidence, I would add, compelled him to conclude that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. Uh, and he wrote a book. Uh, it's not the one he planned to write. He would plan to write one uh, disproving the resurrection. But he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? Dr. Frank Morrison. Uh, the, fir the first chapter is very significantly uh, titled The Book That Refused to Be Written. And finally, I want to mention my old friend and mentor. Uh, I, I say that in in humor because uh, uh, I did not ever know him personally, but I consider him sort of my honorary grandfather. Uh, as you know, some of you may know, I was an orphan, uh, orphaned. Uh, I never knew father or mother, but I, as I grew in my faith in Jesus Christ, I adopted kind of C.S. Lewis as my honorary grandfather. He's just an amazing individual from the last century. Uh, from the last millennium, I guess I should say, too. <clears throat> he, uh, he says, early in 1926, uh, Lewis was a former pro professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. Uh, and he said this about his own life. If you read his autobiography, it's called Surprised by Joy. Uh, he wrote, early in 1926, the hardest, I was the hardest boiled of all atheists that I had ever known. And I sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was surprisingly good. Um, no, 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 let me correct myself. I'm reading a quote not from C.S. Lewis himself, 
But C.S. Lewis felt himself being drawn toward Christianity, being uh, attracted by belief and faith in Jesus, who he was, what he did, what he accomplished on our behalf in the Christian faith. And he did not want – he was an unwilling, very hesitant convert. So he went to a man who was known to be a a professor as well at Harvard – I mean, I'm sorry, at at Cambridge – he went to this man hoping that he would shore him up, that he would, that he would strengthen him in his cynicism, in his agnosticism. And so he went to this guy uh, to, to tell him, you know, look, I'm being kind of attracted, and so I, I need you to help con- show me and convince me that, the, that there's nothing to this Christianity. There's, nothing, there's no real basis or evidence for it. And so he went to this individual, and uh, he sat with this uh, person, he was feeling himself attracted, and this, this, even this agnostic, atheistic professor was the one that said, uh, now Lewis writes, he said, early in 1926, I was seated with the hardest boiled of all atheists I had ever known in my room on the other side of the fire, and he remarked that the historicity of the Gospels was surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on, all that stuff of Fraser's, another professor, about the dying God. Rum thing, it almost looks as if it really happened. And boy, can you imagine, C.S. Lewis, instead of being built up and strengthened in his unbelief, uh, he found this uh, one who was an unbeliever actually uh, giving witness to the, the historicity, the accuracy and the reliability of the historic record about Jesus of Nazareth. And it was only shortly after that then that Lewis uh, made the decision to surrender his heart to God and to begin, become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, that's the pre- approach I want to take tonight as I talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to look at, not in the religious sense necessarily, but I want us to talk about, did this really happen? And we have to remember this. Now, we've been reading through the uh, Old Testament Books. We're in the books of First and Second Kings, and we in, in this program is called the Bible Live. We make our way through the entire Bible every year. If you listen to this program on Monday through Friday at nine thirty in the evening, we have a, the program is called the Bible Live, and it's our our reading program. We uh, read a fifteen to twenty minute reading from the scriptures every weeknight, Monday through Friday, and then we make our way through the entire Bible. Every year. So if you've ever wanted to read the Bible or hear the Bible, now remember these books of the Bible were written to be read aloud. Uh, originally, they were written before the time of reading, and everybody had the Bible in their, in their, on their coffee table or wherever. This was written, these texts and these books were written by the prophets and by these others, the, the writers of the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written with the idea that they would be read aloud to the people. So that's what we do. We read through the scriptures, and you can join us uh, every year, Monday through Friday, to making our way through the entire Bible. We're in the books of First and Second Kings right now. Then we'll leave those and go back and pick up at the Gospel uh, at the book of Acts in the New Testament. We kind of rotate uh, back and forth between the Old Testament and the New, and make our way through the entire Bible every year. Now, here on Sunday night, then we talk about what we've re- read. Uh, this last week, we have some questions and thoughts about Second Kings. But what I, I'm 
jumping ahead a bit and taking on the topic of the resurrection tonight, since it is Easter Sunday, and we need to be realizing and remembering that the Old Testament scriptures, starting with the book of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the the Torah, uh, this is a record of God's intervention in history, revealing himself to others. And in chapter 11, uh, of Genesis, we God turns his attention from the entire world population. He homes in on this man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. And there we begin this record of God choosing out a people, uh, an, an actual people group, uh, what we call the, the nation of Israel, uh, starting with Abraham, the founder of that nation. And he chooses his people group. They're not an ethnicity. Uh, they're just simply a family group, a people group. And he covenants with them to use this people group, Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Israel. You know, Jacob is named Israel, then you have the 12 tribes of Israel, and so on. And we've been following them through the Hebrew Scriptures. And they, were, they are there for a reason. One is they, they are a source of revelation. God chose them and uses them as a continuing reminder of the true and living God, the monotheistic God of the, the Hebrew Scriptures. And they are planted right in the middle of Egypt and Persia and Babylon and uh, these nations of antiquity, right in the middle as the only uh, belief of the true and living God, the, the, the one true God. And they are set there as an example there to be a witness and a testimony of the true and living God. And they do that uh, to some extent. They've, they have ups and downs. They fail many times. And sometimes there are, time, there are periods of faithfulness to that ta- calling. But that was one part of their calling was to be a witness of the true and living God, to maintain a witness in the world as it changed over the centuries. Uh, in the midst of all of the polytheism and the false gods and idolatry. But the second purpose was that they were going to be the conduit. They were going to be the vehicle through which God would bring the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, this hero who would come and do what Adam in the, in the Garden of Eden was unable to do. They, he, uh, he would come and live a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience and submission to the Father. Uh, and then he who knew no sin would become sin for us. So there's our time. The break is upon me right now. Uh, and we'll be right back after these messages and continue our consideration of that first Easter. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to drshelton.com or call 590-7878. Lord, I come to you in my weakness. Please grant me renewed strength. Hi, and thanks so much for joining me for another word of encouragement from our daily bread. Today's reading was written by Arthur Jackson. At the age of 54, I entered the Milwaukee Marathon with two goals, to finish the race and to do it under five hours. My time would have been amazing if the second 13.1 miles went as well as the first, but the second wind strength I'd hoped for never came. By the time I made it to the finish line, my steady stride had morphed into a painful walk. Foot races aren't the only things that require second wind strength. Life's race does too. To endure, tired, weary people need God's help. 
Isaiah chapter 40, verses 27 through 31, beautifully weds poetry and prophecy to comfort and motivate people who need strength to keep going. Timeless words remind fatigued and discouraged people that the Lord isn't detached or uncaring, that our plight doesn't escape His notice. These words breathe comfort and assurance and remind us of God's limitless power and bottomless knowledge. The second wind strength described in verses 29 through 31 is just right for us. Whether we're in the throes of raising and providing for our families, struggling through life under the weight of physical or financial burdens, or discouraged by relational tensions or spiritual challenges. Such is the strength that awaits those who, through meditating on the scriptures and prayer, wait upon the Lord. Today's encouragement was provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Social media is the norm now, and you can connect with AM630 The Word on social media with Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and tune in. Get connected with us today. Find out how at the top of the page at am630theword.com. Prayer is the cornerstone of our relationship with God. Thursday, May 2nd is National Day of Prayer. Join believers from all around the region at San Antonio's main plaza as pastors, students, police, military, and prayer warriors unite in public prayer for our families, cities, and nation. Worship will begin at 1130 and prayer will begin at noon. Let's cry out to God in the heart of our city. Thursday, May 2nd, National Day of Prayer, ndpsanantonio.org. Find out more about your favorite programs and the ministries on AM630 The Word by going to the program guide at am630theword.com. There, you'll get connected to the ministry website, email, and phone number. Plus, find out when your favorite show airs on the program guide at am630theword.com. Hail the festival day. Blessed day to be hallowed forever, day when our Lord was raised, breaking the kingdom of death. All the fair beauty of earth, from the death of the winter arising, every good gift of the year, now with its master returns. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Blessed day to be hallowed forever. Day when our Lord was raised, breaking the kingdom of death. All right, we are back. This is The Bible Live. We are making our way through the scriptures. Our reading this past week came from the books of First and Second Kings. But I'm taking time out today. It is a day of resurrection, the day we commemorate uh, the resurrection from the dead of Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. What a what an amazing thing! I, I've um, <clears throat> of course uh, do a lot of teaching with uh, the basic trainees at Lackland with our mil- work with Campus Crusade for Christ with Crew Military, and uh, we talked about this today. Uh, of course, uh, with our trainees. The fact that the resurrection is first and foremost, it's not a religious event. It's not a mythological sort of a philosophical thing that that if it, it either really, really happened, a man predicted his own death and his resurrection coming back from the dead. Uh, and it happened, or or it didn't. 
And if it didn't happen, according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says if, if uh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. It, it's just ridiculous. Uh, we, have all, we are most miserable of all people. So we're talking about an event. They didn't, uh, when they announced the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples, uh, Peter and John and the early disciples, when they stood courageously in front of the crowd and proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead, they didn't go off into some far-off foreign land where nobody knew anything about Jesus and so on. They kind of announced this thing. They stood right up in the heart of Jerusalem. Only a few weeks now after the actual event of the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, right there in the midst of thousands of people who had witnessed, who knew about the death of Jesus, uh, it was a very highly observed and witnessed event. Uh, Jesus had built a huge following uh, in, uh, as, in his preaching as a result of his ministry of three to three and a half years. And so now they didn't go to some far off land. They stood right there in the middle of, of Jerusalem, 15 minutes walk from the place of the, of the tomb, the empty tomb. Uh, and they said that he had told them that they, he had risen from the dead. Uh, and now, obviously, clearly, if the enemies of Christianity, if those who had crucified Jesus uh, to remove him as a political force and uh, as a danger to uh, the nation of Israel, as they, they understood him to be, uh, if they really wanted to kill Christianity— if they wanted to kill it in the womb before it was even born and got off the ground, all they had to do was produce the body. If they could go and find that body, produce that body, and put it in the wheelbarrow and wheel it right through the middle of the town of Jerusalem, and, and clearly he didn't, he didn't rise from the dead. Here's his body. We have. If they could have done that, if they could have produced the body. And uh, so the, the questions for historians is, what happened to the body of this man, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, and uh, there's so much written about him, historically, uh, extra-biblical sources, archaeological sources we, we have, and, of course, the, the New Testament sources themselves for different uh, eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them giving testimony to the fact that he truly rose. And uh, so I was going through some of these historical aspects of the resurrection, uh, <clears throat> Just to understand that it's not a religious event as such. It is actually it it really happened or it didn't really happen. And the entire biblical message of redemption and salvation is built on the idea that the Messiah was predicted throughout the Old Testament, as I picked up with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then coming on to the people of Israel and Moses as he brings them out of Israel, then as Joshua leads them into the promised land, and then you have the king's Saul, the first king, we've been reading about that. And then King David uh, and uh, his son Solomon, that his son through Bathsheba, and became king. And then now after Solomon, we come now to the time of the dividing of the kingdom under Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. But all of that story, yes, it's about God dealing with men and women in the real world and about their own journeys of faith. But can, as they continue to give witness to the, the true and living God, they constantly predict the coming of this Redeemer, this Savior, this Messiah. Over 300 predictions are made about who he 
is, what he will accomplish, where he will be born, what kind of person he will be, what kind of uh, power, what kind of influence he will exert. Uh, All of these, over 300 predictions about the Messiah. And then we have Jesus of Nazareth coming on the scene, following the witness of John, uh, John the Baptist, who was also predicted, this one who would come before the Messiah and prepare the way for uh, his life and his ministry. And so John the Baptist has fulfilled his role. He was then uh, he was then killed as well, uh, beheaded by Herod. And uh, but he not before he had turned his entire ministry over to Jesus. He had told his followers to follow the Messiah, Jesus, whom he presented to the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus had a ministry to three or three and a half years. And then now, as I mentioned before, he announced that he was going back to Jerusalem, that he was going to be arrested, that he would be uh, falsely accused and convicted of crime, capital crime, and he would be killed, turned over to the Romans to be killed, and but that he would rise from the dead. He clearly began to tell his and prepare his disciples, not only for his death and that loss, uh, but also for the good news that he would rise from the dead, as the Old Testament scriptures predicted that the Messiah would do. Uh, Jesus was that perfect man of faith. He believed God's word, and he went then and walked through the experience uh, of being uh, tried, convicted. <clears throat> All of that happened this past week as we commemorate Holy Week. Good Friday and the arrest of Jesus and his trial. There actually, he was put on trial six times during that one night. Uh, very interesting. He six of those were before J- Jewish uh, leaders, the Sanhedrin, and uh, three of those were before Roman rulers. Let me see. There was Annas. The first one was before uh, Annas, the high priest. Another was before Caiaphas. Uh, there were two high priests at this time. It's the only time we see that happening. And it's because of the uh, the corruption in the in the among the Levites in the Jewish hierarchy, particularly in the religious leadership. There was a lot of corruption. Uh, they they disobeyed God. They were not Levites. They were uh, they bought their places of influence in the nation from the Romans. And so we have one trial before Annas, one before Caiaphas, and then a third trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, the the um, the group of 23 or 24 leaders of the Sanhedrin. Now, the fourth trial was before Pilate. The fifth was before Herod. And then the sixth, uh, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate, where he was then given over to uh, the Jewish leadership to go and to given right permission to, to crucify and execute Jesus of Nazareth. So uh, that's... Uh, that's the historicity of that night when Jesus was arrested out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we have the record of that in the in the Gospels as well. And then he has this night when he is beaten, he is uh, uh, insulted, he is brought before six trials. And all of these trials were illegal. The trials, uh, and there was no condition given for a Jewish um Trials were not to be held at night in secret, and yet these were held in the night hours. So uh, Jesus is um, convicted. Now, there were several security precautions, you would call them, that were taken to make sure that that when Jesus was dead, he would would remain dead and buried. Now, like I told you, it wasn't his friends who remembered 
his promise to rise from the dead. It was his enemies, and they made uh, they made um, sure that they went to the Romans and said, "We need a guard because this guy said he was going to rise from the dead, and we don't want his his followers to come and, and rob the grave and so on." So they set up a, a Roman guard over the tomb. Um, some of the security precautions about the resurrection is one is just crucifixion itself. Crucifixion was introduced and developed into the, one of the world's most cruel uh, methods of torture. Um, <clears throat> Flavius Josephus <clears throat> uh, talked about it. Other historians through the years uh, talked about it. Uh, it was introduced by Alexander the Great, introduced crucifixion into the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world, um, mainly in Egypt and Carthage. Uh, and then the Romans learned the practice from the Carthaginians. There was the custom of whipping. Jesus was whipped. Uh, and if you want to get a, a realistic picture of what the Roman scourging was all about, uh, I would lead you to the movie, Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of the Christ. This is one of the first movies that shows in kind of blatant uh, reality what the scourging, what the whipping was all about. It was not just a, a light little thing. And, of course, the the Jews were limited to, to 40 lashes. And so they usually gave 39 just to make sure they didn't make a mistake and go over the limit. But this was not a, a whipping by the Jews. These were Romans, and they were not under the same um, restrictions. Uh, they used a whip known as a flagrum. Uh, had a sturdy handle to which they attached long leather thongs of various lengths, and they used sharp, jagged pieces of bone and lead that were woven into the uh, leather thongs, and it just ripped the skin off of individuals. And, and um, as I said, uh, usually the the Pharisees, they were under the restriction. They would limit their lashes to 39, but the Romans didn't have that kind of limitation. Um, <clears throat> again, I think you could get a better picture. Instead of my words, uh, I, could, I could read a description from a medical doctor uh, who studied crucifixion. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across the person's shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the thongs cut through the skin only. Then the blows, the blows continue. They cut deeper into the tissue, producing first an oozing blood and then uh, spurting arterial bleeding from vessels. Uh, I mean, he's very literal and very clear. This is a doctor's report, Dr. C. Truman Davis, about the experience of of. Um, crucifixion and particularly the whipping with the flagrum and of course i i was i said you can see this more literally clearly uh, i think more truthfully and accurately in the movie passion of the christ uh then there was a crown of thorns that were placed upon his head with lead uh, uh contributed to further bleeding and wounding <clears throat> he had to carry his own cross he he fell beneath the load of the cross beam that he had to carry Another man was chosen to carry the cross for him. Um, he, he, let me see. What other things that, that would be? Oh, there's so much you could mention. That literally, the perp- the breaking of the legs. Uh, he was crucified with two other men, um, both uh, uh, thieves, or or they were also being uh, executed. One became a believer there on the cross. The other did not. Um, 
you can read the actual what happened in the death by crucifixion was suffocation. The person was unable to lift himself anymore, and his lungs were not able to bring in uh, the needed air. Uh, and that's one of the reasons they broke the legs. Remember, the, they were trying to hasten his death before they wanted him to die and be gone. They wanted the crucifixion over by uh, before 6 in the evening when, when technically uh, Sabbath would begin. And so they, in order to haste the death, they broke the legs of the two thieves that were crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, which was also predicted in the Old Testament. His legs would not be broken, not a bone would be broken. He would be like a lamb without blemish, without spot. Uh, that, that's showing us that all of those crucif- all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, the lambs and the bulls and the goats that were sacrificed on the, those were. Pictures of the work of the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, that he too would be, uh, he would be the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him, who would take away the sins of the world. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead, so they did not have to break his legs, which which uh, fulfilled that prophecy that was written. Uh, but they did uh, ensure that he was dead by thrusting a spear into his side, which you can all read about in Psalm 22, written about 350 years before Jesus lived. So all of these things, every so many details predicted and laid out for us uh, quite literally in the Hebrew, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, about the kind of person he would be, the kind of ministry he would uh, uh, carry out, and some of the details of his sacrifice and of his work as the Messiah, including his death on the cross. You can see it literally described even before crucifixion became known popularly as a means of execution. David writes about it in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus called attention to that psalm when he prayed those opening verses uh, on the cross. Uh, now, the Psalm 22 is not a song of desperation and loss. It's It sounds like in the first verse, but Jesus was reminding, when he quoted those first verses of Psalm 22, he was reminding his listeners, those at the scene of the crucifixion, he was reminding them of that psalm, which carries a very clear, almost... <laughs> eerily accurate picture of of crucifixion even before crucifixion had been uh, uh, became mainstream as a means of execution by the Romans and it ends in victory uh, the psalm is not a victory of defeat and loss and grief it's a psalm of victory of God's redemptive plan and you can read that and so that was what Jesus was reminding the listeners of Psalm 22 when he quoted those opening verses uh, they thrust a spear into his side uh, he was he, Jesus was declared dead twice by a, a professional Roman executioner. Uh, Herod sent they reported once, and then Herod sent them back again to make sure. And uh, that's when the thrust the sword was thrust into his side. Immediately, the coming out blood and water. Uh, <clears throat> which this Doctor Davis that I mentioned to you before, he relates that there is. Uh, an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart. So we would therefore have rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. Uh, so we have a doctor's t- testimony. Uh, the, the, when 
water and blood flowed from his side. That was a telltale indication that he was already dead. Uh, <clears throat> so they did their job. He was killed. He was taken down. Now, the next security precaution was that he was laid into a solid rock tomb. We read about that in Psalm 22, that he was buried in the in the unused burial tomb of a wealthy person, and we see that happen here in the Gospels. Uh, a solid rock tomb. And then uh, there was a Jewish burial. He's placed in the tomb. He's wrapped in uh, burial clothes with about 75 pounds of spices were used uh, <clears throat> uh, to wrap them and wrap him in. The corpse is wrapped in the clothes, in these vestments made out of white linen. And those are the vestments that when John and Peter go to the tomb after the women did, uh, report that Jesus, they've seen Jesus alive, they ran to the team and they found those grave clothes that wrapped around his body, they found them empty, like a like a, a an empty balloon. The, 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 <clears throat> the body they had contained had simply disappeared. So we have that security precaution, the Jewish burial. We have the, the very large stone which I don't have time to go into a great deal of detail about it, but uh, even from the text in Mark sixteen four and so on, uh, we found the uh, a parenthetical statement found in the Bizet manuscripts in the Cam- in the Cambridge uh, Library in England. Uh, there is a statement, a parenthetical, put against the tomb of stone which twenty men could not roll away. So when you read about in Matthew 27 and Mark 16, in today's language, they would have said, wow, get a load of that rock. A huge stone, probably up to one and a half to two tons, were rolled. And how did they get it there? It was it, it, Typically, traditionally, it was placed on, on an, an, a, a ledge where it would roll down. They would put a a wedge down at the bottom to keep it from falling, coming down over the door until the tomb was used. And when it's used, then they'd pull out the wedge, and this huge stone would roll over the door, which usually uh, the door was about four and a half to five feet tall. Um, <clears throat> so the, this stone had been rolled down, and in the uh, temple police, the, the uh, Roman security, the Roman guard, they placed a seal, the Roman seal, uh, over it. Anyone who broke that seal was uh, sentenced to automatic death, execution. And then the Roman guard itself was four to 16 men, uh, a unit that was trained to uh, guard a 64, uh, well, let me see what I've got here. They were supposed to be able to protect 36 yards against an entire battalion. Uh, and there are those who have done studies on the Roman guard, the Roman military, and they tell about this size of a guard that would have been placed at the grave of Jesus. Uh, and now uh, Jesus is resurrected. He leaves, uh, and they go to the the high priest. Why do these Roman guards go to the high priest? Well, it was the death penalty for them to fail in their mission to protect the, the uh, tomb, and so they went to the priest, hoping to get some protection from the priest. And the priest did say uh, that, that they, we will tell this story that the that the uh, uh, disciples came and they stole the body, and the priest gave them money and told them. The story to tell, and that was the that was the story that the uh, that was officially carried out and was given to the news media of the day, I guess, 
And uh, the priests then promised to go to bat for these Roman soldiers so that they would not be executed. So we we have that security uh, precaution all about the uh, Roman guard. And I've already mentioned the Roman seal. Um, A a cord is stretched across the rock, uh, and this was fastened at either wind with sealing clay, and the clay packs were stamped with the official signet of the Roman governor. We see that same thing happen in Daniel chapter 6. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, the lion's den that Daniel was thrown into. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing uh, could be changed in regard to Daniel. So we see that uh, there's a little bit of a predecessor uh, in the use of the seal. Um, Let's see what there was a... the, there were some very facts. All of these were the the security precautions that were taken. And then we see then that the the stone is moved, the seal is broken, the Roman guard is somehow overcome or neutralized, and the body is gone. The grave clothes are empty. Uh, and he appears then to these eyewitnesses. The women saw him first, uh, as we see. And then they took the news back to the, the the disciples, the men. They ran to see if it was true. They saw the empty tomb, the empty grave clothes. And they then, who were once, uh, they were hard to convince. Uh, remember, Doubting Thomas said, I won't believe until I put my hands, my fingers into the wounds of his hands and his side. And Jesus appears and says, come, put your hands, touch my body, see that I have indeed. He was with them for 40 days. <clears throat> teaching them, instructing them before he ascended uh, to glory. Now, uh, his followers then became the, they, his cowardly followers who ran for their lives, who disappeared, who were in hiding. They then went public. They didn't go, like I said, a thousand miles away or a hundred miles away. Right there in the heart of Jerusalem, they began to announce that he had risen from the dead. And they died for that affirmation. If it was not true, if they had not seen the risen Savior, uh, very few people will die for a lie. The only thing they had to do was proclaim that it was a lie. Any one of them could crack and break and proclaim that it was a lie. It was just something that they, you know, hallucinated, for example, or something like that. But they uh, they all went to uh, martyrs' death. All but two died death of martyrs martyrdom, being killed for their faith, with the affirmation that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead, and they had witnessed and seen him uh, living, uh, risen Redeemer, Savior, uh, and and Lord. So that's that's the story of resurrection. It's not. Yeah, we celebrate it, uh, and to some degree in our churches as a religious event and so on, and it, and it has, theologically, it has incredible uh, implications for us, <clears throat> because we too now, as followers of Jesus, we are identified with him in his life, death, and resurrection. We now too, 
have uh, uh, are, are new. We have died to ourselves. We've been buried in Christ uh, through our baptism, not water baptism, uh, our spiritual baptism with the Spirit of God. We are born again. We are new creation, a new people. We are now part of the race of the redeemed. Jesus, as his in his role as the Messiah. As a Savior, was the firstborn of the twice-born. He was the new Adam, the last Adam, it's called. And he starts, he is the firstborn, he is the progenitor of the race of the redeemed, uh, the second, the last Adam. Now we, as his followers, have become a part of the race of the redeemed, and all that is true of Jesus now, by faith as we've trusted in him, becomes true of us. We are reborn uh, we uh, are spiritually alive in Christ. We too have died to ourself. Uh, we have uh, to our selfish desires and wants and needs, and we are raised to live and walk in newness with Him. We are we're, we are saved through our baptism, not our water baptism. That water baptism doesn't save, but it was our spiritual revel- our re- resurrection, our spiritual baptism with His Spirit. And that we are now risen with Christ, uh, seated with him in the heavenlies, and we are now awaiting his second return to join our Savior and to join with all the race of the redeemed to be with our God forever. That is the fulfillment of the redemptive plan of God that was revealed all through the Old Testament, all through the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, even First and Second Kings that we're reading about. Uh, God promised to David an unending kingship, an unending reign. Uh, on A son of David would sit on the throne. And Jesus was indeed a descendant of King David and uh, fulfilling that prediction and prophecy as well. So it all fits together, folks. It's all a one piece, a beautiful, wonderful uh, revelation that God has given to us and a work of redemption that he has carried out. Now we'll come back in just a moment with the last segment of our program tonight. 210-340-9585 if you'd like to join us. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Yes. That's our prayer, Lord, to follow you, know you more closely and follow you more nearly, love you more dearly. Uh, that's our, our prayer as well. Well, we're now going to, I think I'll take a little peek, a little break from talking about the resurrection. I've tried to give a, a good, a fairly thorough presentation about the, the historical dynamic of that moment, of that week in Jerusalem. Jesus knew what he was going into. Uh, he knew he was going down for Passion Week. He knew that he would be killed. Uh, he walked into it. He actually provoked it himself. He spoke clearly. He confronted the religious leaders, uh, knowing what would happen, and, uh, and and he just he walked it through. 
He walked it through. I wow, what a, what a courageous uh, human being! What a man of incredible faith! Uh, and I want to add something. This just quickly to your understanding of the person and work of the Messiah. I want to suggest to you that Jesus knew all of these things about himself. How did Jesus discover and grow into the understanding and the knowledge with this depth of conviction that he was indeed the Messiah? After all of these hundreds and hundreds of years of this promise that someday uh, a Jewish boy is going to be born, he's going to be the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, not only of Israel, but of the world. He would be that long-awaited Redeemer, Messiah. Uh, How did Jesus know he was the Messiah? Now, most of us, uh, we may think about that one or two times in our life, and then we dismiss it because it's just too hard to contemplate. Uh, but then uh, if we do adopt a, a, a theory, we kind of adopt the Superman theory that, well, that he just knew, you know, Jesus remembered he was, uh, he, you know, the son of God. He remembered back when he's sitting on the throne with God in heaven and the angels were flying around him and so on. And, and he remembered all of that. And he just knew kind of like Clark Kent knew he was Superman. Yeah, he carried, he wore his you know thick glasses and his and his suit and tie, and he bumbled around and and acted very human. But deep inside, he he knew he he knew he was. He remembered uh, he had his Superman costume underneath. And we kind of take that approach to Jesus when we think about how did he know, how did he discover, and how did he come to know with this depth of conviction and knowledge that he would even be willing to die. For for the fact that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Redeemer, the Savior. How did Jesus come about knowing that? Now, I want to suggest something to you. Uh, and maybe uh, and now it's biblical, and I can give you the biblical authority for it. I'll give you those scriptures. Uh, I'm I'm here to tell you. I believe, and I think it is far more honoring. And if you if you accept this view, and it's going to cause your appreciation, your admiration for who Jesus was and what he accomplished, it's going to soar to the heavens. It's going to be amazing. You think, wow, you're just going to be far more impressed by what Jesus accomplished for us. Uh, I'm going to uh, uh, suggest to you that Jesus learned that he was the Messiah uh, in the normal ways that we all learn things about ourselves. You know, mom and dad told us about our grandparents and who we were and where we were were born. And, and, you know, maybe they'll even tell us where we were conceived. You know, mom and dad, we told our children early on, you know, we were overseas when you were born and this and that happened. And we gave them all. Well, I think Mary and Joseph told Jesus about those kind of things, just even on a human basis. But remember, Mary and Joseph knew the whole story. The angel Gabriel had been sent to tell them. They knew about that. They Mary knew she had a child without without having human uh, sexual intercourse. That she she knew this was unusual. She and uh, she was told by the angel they should name them Jesus, which they did, Yeshua. Um, and so they knew a lot, and they passed that on to their son as he grew, uh, five, six, seven, eight years of, of age. They began to tell him about himself. And, of course, Jesus went to the synagogue. He was trained and taught the children of that era. Jacob is fond of letting us know what took place, what was the cultural uh, norms for children of uh, uh, Jewish children in that era of Roman domination and, and the corruption of the, of the uh of the temple and the, and the uh, you know the Jewish religious uh, hierarchy and system had been so corrupted, uh, but they they weren't able to have a, a, 
uh, uh, Torah, uh, but they memorized the, the book of Deuteronomy. And so uh, we talked last week about over 70% of Jesus' quotes from the, from the Tanakh came from the book of Deuteronomy. And he quoted the scriptures continually. Well, Jesus, how did he come to know he was the Messiah? Uh, we know that by age 12, he was already clearly understanding that, his, that God was his father, not Joseph. Uh, now, I'm sure he honored Joseph as his earthly father and Mary as his mother and so on, as a, a good, holy, uh, righteous, living Jewish person would do according to the commands of God. But he knew that he had to be about his father's business. You remember that episode at the temple. So Jesus had this growing understanding. He grew in, in knowledge and understanding and favor with God and man, we're told in the Scriptures. So he grows and grows. He stays with his mom, takes care of the family, evidently, as the oldest son of the family, uh, until he's about 29. And then uh, God the Father makes it clear and urges him in to present himself as the Messiah, using his mom as one of the influences to, to present himself as the Messiah to Israel and to begin his public ministry, 29 or 30 years of age. But how did Jesus know that he was the Messiah? He knew it by faith. He accepted the testimony of his mom and dad. See, he, he didn't have any supernatural knowledge and understanding and mem- remembering. He took the witness of his mom and dad and his family. He took the witness of Scripture, all of the prophecies and predictions. He saw that he was born in Jerusalem. I mean, he saw that he was born in Bethlehem as the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. He saw that he was a descendant of David on both sides of his family, both Joseph and Mary. Uh, so many, he, they're sojourned down into Egypt. He fled down into Egypt at age two when Herod was killing the children, uh, trying to find and eliminate this, this so-called king of the Jews that he had heard about. So he went down into Egypt and then he returned. That was also predicted. Jesus could sit and, and watch and look through his life, and he saw the predictions, he saw the prophecies that were to be characteristics of the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah's life, and he could see that I am that one. And I believe that he accepted that role as a step of faith, and he walked by faith in that role. Uh, and as he took steps of faith, God have confirmed, as he does with us when we take steps of faith, God confirms and builds and strengthens our faith as well. And God did that in Jesus as well. And uh, as a man, the perfect man of faith and trust and obedience to the Father. And by doing that, by walking out that walk, he earned the right to be our Redeemer, our Savior, our Messiah. It wasn't some sort of a uh, magical thing that took place in the sense of uh, he knew who he was. This was this was both magical and divine and spiritual, but it was I- incredibly human and earthly and understandable. Uh, a, a man walked out a perfect life of faith and trust and obedience to the Father as a man from the time he was a fertilized egg on the wall of Mary's womb to the time he breathed his last breath on the cross. Jesus walked and lived and accomplished everything he did, his sermons, his miracles, everything. He accomplished them not on the basis of his own prerogative and initiative as God, but he functioned under the empowering uh, leading, guiding, shaping work of the Father and the Spirit of God guiding him through and enabling him to feel, fulfill that role as a man of faith. Uh, and I want you to consider that. Please do that. Don't just dismiss it immediately. Look at the, John chapter 5. In verse 19, Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. 
my own strength, my own prerogative, my own initiative, my own divine right and authority. Jesus said, I don't do anything based on my own prerogative and initiative as God. I do only what the Father tells me, shows me, and empowers me to do, leads me to do. So Jesus himself, in verse 19 and also in verse 31 and many and other passages as well in the Gospel of John, five times in the first six chapters, Jesus says that he... He does nothing of his own power and initiative, that he walks out the walk of the Messiah as a man of faith. And, and, and we see that clearly illustrated in the, uh, in the temptation of Jesus. When we see uh, in John chapter 4, I think Luke chapter 4 as well, where we see Jesus being tempted by Satan in the, in the wilderness, what is Satan trying to tempt Jesus to do? He's trying to tempt Jesus to do something that he has every right to do as God. Let's take the stone. Could Jesus have turned the stone into bread? Remember, that was one of the temptations. Did he have the right to turn the stone into bread? Of course, he had the power and the right. He created that stone. Uh, John starts off his gospel saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and nothing was made that was made without him. So Jesus created that rock. He could have turned it into anything he wanted, uh, a bunny or a loaf of bread or whatever. Uh, and, and Satan, of course, knows this. But Satan was trying to get Jesus to do something of his own divine prerogative and initiative and authority and power as the Son of God. He had every right to do it, and he had the ability to do it. But what would have happened if Jesus had given in to that temptation to change the stone into bread? Nothing would have happened to Jesus. If he's God, he's God, and you can't change that. Uh, if he's God, he's eternally God, and that cannot be changed forever. That was not what Satan was trying to eliminate. He would not be so foolish as to try to get God not to be God. What he was trying to do is eliminate Jesus from being our Redeemer, our Savior, our Mediator. Because if he could have gotten Jesus in either in any three of the of the temptations, if he have, if he could have gotten Jesus to act of his own prerogative and initiative and power and authority as God. Instead of functioning under the influence and leadership and guidance and the enabling power of the Father and the Holy Spirit in his life, if they could have gotten Jesus to act independently of the Father and the Spirit, then Jesus would have been eliminated from being our Savior. Because to be our mediator, he had to walk out the perfect life of faith and trust and obedience and submission to the Father. Uh, Do you see what I mean now when I say that if you understand this, and Paul talks about it, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus was, he didn't count it robbery to be equal with God, but he was willing to empty himself. He didn't cease being God ever, but he, he voluntarily left off the free exercise of his divine prerogatives and initiatives as God so that he could be our mediator, our savior. Uh, he, he became a servant uh, in the form of a man, obedient even un, uh, obedient to the Father, even unto death, death on the cross. So look at Philippians chapter 2, John chapter 5, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and you'll see there that Jesus is indeed, he earned that right to be our mediator and Savior by being the perfect man of faith and trust and obedience to the Father. He did not have an unfair advantage by, oh, he could do that because he was God. What he did, he did as a man, as a man of faith. 
And, and I think it's important for us to understand that it is consistent with everything we read in the New Testament about the Savior, about Jesus, and it will cause your admiration for him, not only your understanding of the, of the, in terms of Christology, not only your understanding of who Jesus was and what he accomplished on our behalf, but also it will cause your admiration of him to just soar to the heavens, how we praise him and and, and glorify his wonderful name. That's why Paul says, after he lays that picture out for us in, in Philippians chapter 2, uh, about Jesus, the man of faith, and he, and he says, on the basis of that, because he was willing to die and humble himself to death, even death on the cross, God has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every name, every man every, uh, uh, above the earth, under the earth, everywhere, would, would magnify his holy name, that, uh, that every knee and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the, the basis of our admiration. So Jesus, Jesus wears those two hats. Everybody, you have to come if you're going to understand uh, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, particularly uh, in terms of your Christology. You're going to have to understand that Jesus wore two hats, and sometimes in the New Testament or in the Bible, it talks about Jesus in his role as the eternal Son of God. Sometimes it mentions that, and that he never ceased being God, and it mentions that. But other times when it's talking about Jesus, it's talking about his role as a human being, that unique, uh, one-of-a-kind human being who would be born, have a common experience with all humanity, but that he would be that unique one who came to be the Savior, the Redeemer, the Messiah. Uh, so you have to choose from the context of the verse in, in what in what way is it a talking about Jesus, uh, or you can it could lead you to some confusion about your understanding of the Christology, your understanding of of the uh, of the um, the incarnation, what it meant, how it was accomplished, uh, and, and so on. So. Um, and, and what it meant and how Jesus walked it out perfectly. So uh, maybe you have a question about that. If you'd like to give me a call, we've got a few more minutes left in the program. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. If you have a question or a comment about what I've just shared or a question about it uh, or, or maybe a thought about it, you can give me a call and I'd be glad to visit with you about it here on the air. We have about 10 minutes left in the Bible Live program tonight. Meanwhile, I'm going to go to the book of 1 Kings. Uh, we talked about this week, uh, <clears throat> we talked about Solomon. A, a good part of our reading was about Solomon, his wisdom. Remember, he, uh, God gave him a wish, and he said, I would want wisdom to govern over your people. And God gave him that wisdom, as well as riches and, and honor and power, as well, political and uh, worldly power as well, we're told. So, uh Solomon's wisdom, we, that wonderful story of the two women uh, with a child, and they both say that the child is theirs. And how did Solomon solve that dilemma? How did he, he use this incredible wisdom? It's not out of this world, but it's, it's very remarkable. He said, well, let's just cut the baby in half and we'll give half to you and half to you. And the real mother spoke up rather quickly and said, no, no, don't do that. Give her the child. And so by that wisdom, he understood that, that she was indeed the real mom who would, want, who would want, not want him to be killed but want him to live. 
which is a great, great lesson for the times in which we live with abortion on demand and killing innocent children in the womb. Uh, it's a great story, uh, this story from the book of First Kings chapter uh, 3 uh, for us. It's very relevant to the times in which we live as well. Now, <clears throat> Uh, Solomon reigned over Israel. David get, turned the reign over to him. This was the the golden age of Israel. This is the greatest time of power and influence and wealth, uh, prosperity that the people of Israel ever knew under the reigns of David and Solomon. And then he kind of throws it away in his foolishness. Uh, Star- Solomon built the temple of God. Remember, David was not allowed to build the temple because he was blood on his hands. He was man of war. Uh, but he gathered the resources and the money and the wealth and contributed to it. But it was Solomon, then his son, who was able to build the beautiful temple, the Solomon's temple. Um, it, it served as a place of worship for about 400 years from uh, – 960, 960 years before Christ to 586 years before Christ when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, in 586. So about 400 years the temple served as a place of worship. Um, Oh, there's so, so many details we could go into about the tabernacle. But remember this, everything that happens in the Old Testament the sacrificial system, the kings, the the descendants, David and, and, and Solomon, and so every detail of their national life was not only a detail of them, of God's blessing and using them and encouraging them to be a witness to the reality of the true and living God in the midst of a very uh, 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 idolatrous, uh, following false gods and wicked uh, empires all around them. As I said before, there, there was uh, uh, Assyria in the north, there was Babylon, there was uh, Nineveh the, uh, in the north, and Babylon over in the, in the far east, and then there was Egypt in the south, and the, these smaller groups of Moab and the, and the Ammonites and others. They were surrounded by idolatry and wickedness. The Philistines that came from across the Mediterranean, and they were constantly under duress, threatened, attacked, uh, and and they were compromised, and and people knew that that was that was what they stood for, that one true and living God, and they would use that against them. They would tempt them with with uh, sexual immorality and uh, all kinds of immorality and cruelty and and idolatry and worship of false gods. Uh, and so, Israel served as a place trying to keep alive the witness of the true and living God uh, there in the in the center of, of all of the, the developing and expanding uh, world. Uh, then <clears throat> we also see, though, that, that the nation is being preserved by God. Even when they failed in their task, they weren't destroyed. They were, they were weakened. They were, they were killed. They were slaughtered. They went t- through times of terrible judgment of God on them. God used them as a, an instrument of judgment on the wicked, cruel Canaanites and other uh, dynasties and empires. God used them as an instrument of, of uh, judgment at times, but also he used other nations, even pagan sinful nations, as instruments of judgment on Israel, and and they would suffer great persecution and killing and slaughters, and uh, uh, ultimately under the the uh, 
the Nineveh, those from Nineveh in the north, remember that they were the ones that destroyed the ten tribes in the north. Uh, in 722 B.C., and it was the kingdom, the, the wicked, cruel kingdom of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed uh, Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So we we see God using them, but also God using others to exact judgment on them, too, as a people. Uh, <clears throat> God is fair and just in all of his judgments and right. <clears throat> So we got we see God using Israel as a as a witness, uh, keeping alive the vision and understanding of the one true God, and also remember that they are to be the conduit; they are to be the channel through which God would send the Redeemer, the Messiah, this unique human being, this unique man. First predicted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after the fall of Adam and Eve in sin, God says, I'm going to send a redeemer, a human being. It's not going to be an angel or it's not going to be an, an animal. I'm going to, the human being will come who will destroy the works of Satan. He will crush Satan's head, although he would be uh, wounded in the heel. So we have that first uh, Glimpse that first shadowy picture of the of the Redeemer, the Messiah, and what He would do, what would be His primary work, and all through the Old Testament, then we see these these overt pictures. There were predictions of the Messiah, what He would be like, what would be His lineage of descendancy, that what would be that He would be a Jew, that He would be of what tribe, the tribe of Judah, that He all these things about Him. Over 300 predictions, but not only those verbal predictions by the prophets and others, but also we see pictures of the work of the Redeemer in the temple, in the design of the temple, and later on the design of the tabernacle. We see pictures of the Messiah, the redemptive plan of God. Uh, We see the sacrificial system, which is a picture of God's judgment and how seriously God takes sin. The soul that sins, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Those are Old Testament versions of the New Testament verse, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. So we, we see then that this is all of one piece. The Hebrew scriptures are pointing faithfully forward to this Savior, this Redeemer, this Messiah that God is going to send through the people of Israel and through the lineage of King David. And, of course, that, as I mentioned earlier, is part of Jesus' reality. So we, we see that all, even the book of First Kings here, even the dividing of the kingdom, none of these things are going to prohibit the continuing promises of God coming to, to bear and coming to be true through the work. So uh, as we read the book of the Old Testament, we're seeing two things going on. One is God preserving the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, as a witness to him, to the nations and the empires of the world. So there's one thing is God is using them as a witness to the to the world of the these uh, these hundreds of years that they exist. God uses them faithfully through those centuries. And then also we see God is preserving them as a people and preserving their lineage uh, so that through them, in all these details, born in Bethlehem, his ministry would be headquartered in the northern tribes and so on. All of these things are predicted by the, the Old Testament, the Tanakh. And we see them carried out faithfully, perfectly executed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. What a Savior. What a God is ours. What a Savior is ours. Have a great uh, Easter evening, everyone. We'll see you next week back here on The Bible Live.
The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture and is brought to you by Crew Military Ministry. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help crew military minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.